Pastor Mai, good afternoon and welcome to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dolan Mercer. This week we're dedicating the programme to one of the Isle of Man's best known and most respected broadcasters. It was announced on Thursday this week that Roger Watterson had passed away at the age of 77. Roger's involvement with Manx Radio began in 1974 when he co-authored a report into the station. He was then elected to the House of Keys in 1976 and appointed to the Broadcasting Commission and the Manx Radio Management Committee. He served one term in middle between 1976 and 1981. On air, he'll be best remembered as the voice of Sunday Opinion and the man in line on Manx Radio for 27 years from 1992. Perhaps fittingly, Andy Wint broke the news on the man in line on Thursday afternoon. I have some sad news uh, for you and certainly for everyone here at Manx Radio. Earlier on this morning, shortly after midnight, we lost one of our esteemed colleagues and dear close friends at Manx Radio, Roger Watterson died early this morning. Roger passed away at the age of 77. Former MHK, former BBC announcer, and certainly businessman on the Isle of Man for many, many years. A loving family man as well. Having broken the news of Roger's passing, Andy Wint then spoke to his widow, Gwen. You know that he has spent 25 years with his programme on Manx Radio, and it was a very popular programme. And he had one last wish coming up to Christmas. He said, if I feel better after Christmas, I want to do 25 years and almost to sign, do a programme for 25 years, almost as a signing off. But unfortunately, his health started to really decline and uh, he wasn't able to do it, which was, uh, you know, a great pity because, as you know, as you know, um, he has interviewed lots of different people all with different subjects and subjects that really took quite a lot of um, investigation. He spent a lot of time researching the work and so on. And um, I mean, for instance, he came home one evening and he said to me, what do you know about liver? Well, what do you say to something like that, Andy? And it turned out that he had to do a program with one of the doctors who performed the operation on Georgie Best. And I said to him, Roger, this is way out of your comfort zone. However, it was one of the most interesting programs that he did. It was absolutely fascinating. I sat there and I, I, could, have, I could have listened for hours because the, the, the doctor himself, who was actually from Peel, which made it again more interesting, lent, lent um, interest to the programme. And he just sat down and explained it in such a way. It was absolutely fascinating. And, he, he's, and then he had to do a programme with was it Lord Levison. Now, those are two very diverse subjects, but yet he would spend hours and hours researching them. And I thought, well, if he can just do the programme after Christmas... That would be fantastic, but unfortunately, it didn't happen. Roger had a long um, career, Gwen. He he'd been a, oh, he a he'd been a politician. Uh, he'd worked yes. at the BBC in Manchester. Obviously, yes. he'd set yes. up uh, the copy yes. shop. He'd worked in publishing yes. an awful lot. Yes. A very very yes. resourceful man. Yes, he was, and and uh, he had lots of support and lots of friends, and 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 people very often would come up to him, especially in the shop, and they'd say, "Well, we listen to you on a Sunday morning." He took great, great pride in that because he was very, you know, he had a, a, a great fondness for Manx Radio, as you know. And, and how it came about was that 25 years ago, Charlie Charles Webster, the producer, came in to see him and he said, Roger, I'm stuck. I'm stuck for four weeks. I just need somebody just to cover. Can you, can you help me out for four weeks? And of course, he was there for 25 years. Charlie was long retired and Roger was still there and he would still be there had this um, problem with his health not overtaken. Well, he's been uh, he's been battling ill health for a while, but oh, yeah. the, but the yeah. uh, he was an extremely brave man and never oh, he was. ever ever yeah. seemed disconsolate, never blamed mm. anyone else. Roger took everything mm. on his shoulders. That's right. And and to be honest with you, it was the work that he was doing uh, that that kept him going. The work that he did, particularly for, for Manx Radio as well, all the work that he was doing, um, he just felt that he, he just wanted to keep going. And I think, uh, I mean, let's, let's be honest, he was, a, he was suffering very badly with, with cancer. 
he started with prostate cancer and then it got into his bones and it floored him. But um, it, it was just this um, optimism, this feeling of optimism that he just wanted to keep going. And we were there to support him. We did whatever we could to support him. Well, I know and, he was... And the uh, people at Manx Radio as well did the same. I mean, we had Catherine up there. She was, she was very loyal and, and very helpful to him. Well, I know, Gwen, he was surrounded by a loving family, um, by um, family, by grandchildren as well. And all I can do is, on behalf of Max Radio and the listeners of Max Radio, say thank you to Roger for a a wonderful career and a wonderful life. Yes, right. Thank you, Andy. Gwen Watterson there, speaking to Andy Wint. After passing on his condolences to the Watterson family and friends, as well as the staff at the copy shop in Douglas, Andy proceeded to pay his own tribute to Roger, joined in the studio by his namesake, the Speaker of the House of Keys. Uh, Roger Watterson was a, a formidable man uh, and a, of a powerful intellect as well. And he, he was a very, very proud Manxman. Uh, we lost Roger Watterson, aged 77, earlier on. Um, another Watterson wants to say something about uh, Juan. Yeah, I, I'm just learning this news as I walked into the station uh, today and uh, it's absolutely floored me. Um, it's hard to think that Roger was an MHK so many years ago, 40 years ago now, in, in 1976 to 1981. Um, my uh, sincere condolences to, to Gwen, but uh, one did used to dread going on the Sunday Opinion programme for exactly the reason she said. He was always well prepared. He always had thought around the issues and, and gave you some, some tough grilling. So it's um, we're very sorry to hear that. And uh, I know more recently uh, Roger and Gwen have been very helpful in helping uh, Russian Heritage Trust with our exhibition materials and giving advice on that because again it was something that Roger really loved the history, culture, heritage of the Isle of Man and um, he was very generous with his time in in doing things like that so he will be very much missed in the Isle of Man community. That was Dewan Watterson MHK there speaking on the Man in Line this Thursday. As you might expect, tributes to Roger began to flood in in no time. We'll hear some of those words shortly. But first, Manx Radio's John Moss took a look back at Roger's life. Roger Watterson was educated at Douglas High School and then trained in business management and in the printing and broadcasting industry. That education was to prove invaluable both in his work as a member of the House of Keys between 1976 and 1981, in his printing business, and in his lengthy broadcasting career on Manx Radio. His career started in management at Woolworths before he launched out into broadcasting and filmmaking. Elected member of the Keys for Middle in 1976, He was very involved in the row over the pirate radio station Radio Caroline, which led to a heated row with Whitehall and talk of the island breaking away from the UK. After he tried unsuccessfully to regain a parliamentary seat, he concentrated on his printing business. But he was building a reputation as a thoughtful, informed broadcaster. It was on Sunday Opinion, his programme with David Collister, that news of the Manx Electricity Authority's unauthorised loan was broken. On this programme, if you may remember, when we were talking a few months ago, I did raise this issue with you because by then already the word was out that the MEA was going to substantially increase its borrowings. And you said at the time that, look quite bewildered at me, said I've heard nothing about it. So has this thing yes. been kept really under the wraps all the time? It's been kept secret from you? It's, it certainly has been, been kept from Treasury and we had the draft accounts of the MEA uh, some three weeks ago in which for the first time it was discovered that this borrowing had taken place. Roger's other interests lay in photography, walking, music and Manx culture, but always at the forefront was his passion for Manx politics. John Moss there. People from across the Isle of Man took to social media to pay their respects. A true gentleman with a great sense of humour, a great asset to Manx Radio, a very good boss and one of the good ones, just some of the things said of him. Some more former colleagues of Rogers, Charlie Webster and James Davis, spoke to William King on Thursday evening. Well, I, I actually went to school with Roger. So I've known him for 60, 60 years. And he, even in those days, he was always keen on radio. He always went home to listen to the radio and everything else. And uh, he was never happier than having a microphone in his hand or headphones on. That, that just made him completely happy. And when the late John Lucas died, we had a 
one or two presenters who would come in on a Sunday morning and we'd do the um, the Sunday Opinion programme. It worked for a little bit, but it wasn't successful really. And I thought, but I needed somebody permanent. I thought, ah, I'll go and see Roger, see will he fill in for four weeks while we find somebody. And I thought I knew the answer before I even asked him. I went to the coffee shop, up the stairs to his office. First of all, black coffee. And I said, I'm a bit stuck, Rog. Um, you wouldn't fancy doing the man in line for four weeks, would you? I said, you can think about it over the weekend and I'll come on Monday morning and see what you think. Straight away, I've thought about it already. <laughs> <laughs> when do you want me to start? Yeah. And that's bizarre friendship. We covered all sorts of things, all sorts of programmes, from abortion to drugs to violence, anything we covered. And, and that was four weeks that turned into, what, a quarter and, of a century or something? Five years. Yeah. I did feel sorry for him because I retired 15 years ago. <laughs> he had to keep going. And yeah. he had to keep going. But <clears throat> I was lucky in the early days because the newsroom, <clears throat> with no disrespect to them, wasn't the newsroom with bite and... Uh, drive. Drive. Yeah. You came on the scene and I felt sorry for Roger. Because when I was doing it, the newsroom wasn't doing the drive and everything else. So I was picking Didn't up, he? I was picking up everything because the newsroom weren't following any good program, oh. any good stories up. They would just cover it, but they'd never follow it up like you did when you came on the air. You actually, you were like, I, I called you the rock violin. Oh, right, okay. I thought you were very excellent and, and you sadly missed on the radio. Um, but but Roger Roger was a political animal, wasn't he? Oh, he's so a with politics animal. and radio, I, I think it it really it really was in his element, wasn't it? Oh I mean, yes. But just he, tell me about that that program and I, there was the horse tram program. I remember. Well, it wasn't was there? it was when the foot and mouth was on, and there was <clears throat> big discussions whether the TT should go ahead or not, and it was decided by the Board of Agriculture that to uh, cancel the TT because any foot and mouth. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce, by the way, brought an expert over from, I think he came, he came from America, an expert on foot and mouth and how they could be able to run the TT during the foot and mouth. And they brought this guy up. He was so old, he had to virtually carry him up in a chair because he couldn't make the stairs. And Roger said to me, is this going to be any good of a programme? I said, I think it'll be all right, Roger, don't worry about it. So we sat him down and Roger says now, is that, can we have the TT without any infection getting into the island? So the guy said, oh yes, he said, uh, you spray all the cars. So Roger said, well, what about the foot passengers? Oh, you spray them as well. <laughs> and the Chamber of Commerce, I think, they were called nuts. This is the last thing that they wanted. Anyway, it was decided, cancel the foot and uh, cancel the TT. So Roger said to me, what are we going to do? I said, I know what we'll do. I'll borrow a horse tram from the corporation and we'll go on the prom and we'll pre-arrange for guests to be picked up to talk about whether people come for the TT or whether they come for the atmosphere and the Mad Sunday and everything else. I, that Sunday, I phoned up David Cretney a week before and he, I said, can you come along? He said, no, I can't make it because I'm going to the Derby motor racing. That's fair enough. So I go ahead with everybody else. Everything's arrained. The Sunday morning, I came up here to get some microphones. He, he would have been Minister for Tourism. Was Minister for Tourism, yeah, yeah. yeah. I came up here to get some microphones. George Ferguson's down here. Oh, big smile. The minister, the, the chairman of the Tourist Board, will like a word with you. Morning, David. Uh, I told you I wasn't coming to this programme. I said, I know that. But I've just heard a promo. I said, well, it's still going ahead without you. Oh. <coughs> phone goes down. Five minutes later, managing director Stuart Watterson phones up. What have you done? I said, well, I haven't done anything really. He said, I thought you'd cancel this program. I said, no. I said, the horse is waiting down there to go. <laughs> so, so he said, oh, he said, we had a meeting with the, with the tourist board. We're all going to work together. And now you've gone and done this. He said, I want you in my office in the morning at nine o'clock. Bang, the phone goes down. Oh, no, before that. I said to him, sorry, if you want the programme, Paul Stewart. I said, you're the managing director. You can just tell me you're my boss and I'll pull the programme. Uh, well, what would you say to the guests? I said, I'll, I'll phone them up and say it's been pulled due to political interference. <laughs> you can't say that, he said. <laughs> so he said, I'll have to go on. 
anyway, gets down at the... Well, did David Cretney turn up, did he? Get down to the sea too. No. Uh, David Cretney's there. <laughs> uh, he said, I can't miss this. I've got to come. So the horse goes off. And I didn't realise how how noisy the horse tram really was. And poor Roger could hardly hear the people at the, the back door. Yeah. And he was running up and down. We picked up the hoteliers and chatted to them. Got to the end of Derby Castle, turned the horse around, came back, dropped everybody off. Got to the sea terminal. Who's there? Stuart Waddle. <laughs> With a big smile on his face, I get off. A, a very good program. Stuart, um, David Cretney. Oh, can I quote in the man in line? He said, I really have enjoyed myself at the moment, he said. Because all the, all the hits were on to Alex Downey, who was the chairman of the Board of Agriculture. So David had a, a good ride. So that was... Uh, that was a good morning's work, good I fun. thought. Yeah, and Roger, of course, Roger actually adored it. Yeah. You know, he's, he couldn't stop laughing about it all. I mean, he had that little twinkle in his eye. Do, do, do you know, you, you mentioned that the horse trumps there. I mean, he could turn his hand to anything. I remember um, getting involved with the first ever programme with him that I did on the Solway Harvester tragedy. But whether it was that, whether it was uh, the surgeon who who performed the liver operation on George Best, mm -hmm. uh, he could literally just turn his hand to anything, oh, yes, couldn't he? Oh, yes, yes. And he, he did a lot of research. He didn't just walk in without being um, well prepared. He was always very well prepared for Roger. Yeah. I think, um, you know, what he, he we'll all, we've all got different stories about him and, and his, mm -hmm. his wealth of knowledge and his um, warmth and his, his, he shared. He was a great sharer. He encouraged oh, everyone yes. and was as interested in you whether you were eight or 80. But I, I think perhaps what we'll miss most of all, you know, he was kind, he was courteous, he was considerate. But I, I think most importantly, he was interested in you. Uh, oh, as, yes. a, as a person, what mm. was going on in your life? What was your view on this? You and know, whoever you were as oh, well totally. as a point that's been made today by people on the air, off the air. He was able to interview the politicians, the people uh, in charge, and he was able to interview the, the kids on the street. On the street, yeah, he interviewed anybody, yeah. And totally yeah. without ego as oh, well. Oh, it totally, know, it, it, it wasn't about what he wanted to achieve. Or, no, oh, totally no. without ego no. and a great sense of humour. And my word, he'd laugh at himself too, oh, wouldn't he? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, mean, he, he, I mean, I think he went to some of the meetings and it, obviously silence doesn't work on radio. So if there was something and they suddenly needed applause, didn't he, he not gave you the nod, oh, hold I, the board I, 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 up, I applause, the board and the, clapped, the audience clapped, 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 you know, you, you and, needed uh, that type of thing. Oh right. yes, we did all sorts of things. And he, he loved doing documentaries as well. Yeah. Do you know as well, he was actually, I don't think, uh, not a lot of people know this, but he was actually quite heavily involved, instrumental in the first uh, radio station for a Premier League football club. Really? And, I did yeah, not know that. And, and it wasn't one of the, the sort of giants of the game. It wasn't a Manchester United, a Liverpool and Arsenal. It was Blackburn Rovers. And he and a, and a friend across, a friend approached him who was big, big in Blackburn at the time and uh, and got that off the ground. And I think that was actually the template that United and other clubs subsequently used. And I remember the night of the Solway Harvester, um, the tragedy, what, January 2000, and then about six, seven months later, the vessel was That's raised right. finally and brought into Ramsey, Ramsey. Mm -hmm. and Roger's there broadcasting this live and I wasn't at the radio at the time but I do remember him telling me this story and you couldn't hear a pin drop as you, you'd There's imagine. thousands of people down thousands there. Of thousands of people down there. Thousands, see, yeah. very poignant. And then suddenly he gets notif notification in his ear that they're putting you on the, the, the BBC World Service. So suddenly from talking to say five or six thousand, he's talking to half, three quarters of yeah. a million people. Oh, it would be. Mm. Not, not a flicker. He just carried on as as consummate a professional as he always was. Oh, yes. As he was. I mean, that would have, you know, probably put the wind up some people, but not Roger. It was very much, let's carry on. And and you know what? Of course you're frustrated. I think that the, at times you're tested, aren't you, in, in the job and your patience and if you, you, you're not getting where you want with a, oh, a no. certain politician. Yeah. But do you know what? He didn't get frustrated. And if he was irritated he yeah, he yeah. always kept his calm and he didn't show it and he tried to get round it and, and i would imagine he's been thoroughly fed up in recent months with his illness oh i think so but he was still always he's, at last half full man and he always mm. tried to be optimistic didn't he yes he was he was he was very disappointed when he couldn't do the sunday pinning anymore mm. because it was his it was his sunday i mean he used to live for sunday saturday night i used to say to him he'd come around for dinner and he'd say, oh no no i can't i can't leave the house sunday night and uh, you do his research and everything yeah. else. Today there seems to have been 
a wide outpouring on social media um, and via traditional media coming coming into the radio station as well, um, and I assume elsewhere of people outpouring their love for Roger Watterson from all parts of the Isle of Man, um, physically and um, in other circles outside of broadcasting. Why was he so widely respected? Well, I think he he was a very good businessman and he ran a very good business in the copy shop. So he met an awful lot of people through his business. He was very, very popular in there, extremely popular. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, on the radio, of course, that's uh, even, even more given uh, a profile. Hmm. I, th- I think it was common decency. Yeah. I think he was such a genuine, Person. kind-hearted guy. There was no, there was no side to him. Uh, uh, he knew how to treat people. He yeah. knew what was important in life. And, and um, I mean, we, we say he sort of bore the illness in the last year or so, and he's been ill for a lot longer than that, incidentally. Nine but years. Yeah, but he, he bore it with great dignity. And and I think the Isle of Man is, um, and the island community generally, it's, it's a poorer place without the without the, the Roger Watersons yes, of this yeah. world. And, and uh, no, he, he really was one of the Manx Radio greats. I think it's fair to say that in, what, 50 five years of broadcasting yes. he really was one of the the established big hitters and him and david collister together incidentally were a, a real force to be reckoned with as well when they got together how did roger manage to mix his um his his political career because obviously he was an mhk um with then coming into broadcasting i did an interview with tristram llewellyn jones earlier who'd said that one of the things he picked up when he was speaking to roger when he was being interviewed by him, was was his impartiality? How did he manage that whilst also having been a political figure? That's a good question. I can't can't really answer that really. I think perhaps he had a more of an idea because he'd had those five years in the Keys and the importance of absolutely staying straight and, and staying professional and playing playing it with a, a straight bat. I think that probably helped him because. You know there were certain rules, and remember he was—he spent time at the BBC. He was trained, yeah. probably going back to the days where you, you read the news in a, a dicky bow and a, a you know mm. a, a DJ, and and it was imperative that you you didn't show a bias or a leaning. And he he sort of kept that throughout his career. I'm sure his um his, his training w- would have helped that way. I mean, in in many ways, you could say he was a, a bit of a frustrated politician because he he's, he served five years in the Keys. That's right. And and had a couple of other attempts which, which, when he wasn't successful, and and then ultimately went into the business and the radio, of course. But actually, he probably um, provided just as much a service, if not more, to the island through his media work, ultimately. And and I mean, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but politicians are never just elected on ability alone. For for no. forever and a day, you're elected yeah. on a variety of for a variety of reasons. Because if it was on pure ability alone. Roger Watterson would have been successful every time in in every election. It, it only um, it was only a few years ago actually. My my, my granddad was in MHK with him at, for five years in the late seventies, early eighties, mm-hmm. and apparently he said to a family member of mine who recalled it to me a few years ago. He said, "In in all my time, the most able politician I worked with in the Keys for those five years was Roger Watterson." Roger. And and uh, I don't know if Roger w- was ever told that, but uh, I think that says a lot about the the. The measure of the man. Yes. He, he was a intelligent guy. How, how would he react then? How would Roger react seeing all of the tributes which have been paid to him today? He'd be very embarrassed, I think. He'd be thrilled deep down, but he wouldn't let it be known. But I think deep down he would be uh, very, very pleased with, with the reception. Because I said he was a loving man. Well, I think he'd be touched, wouldn't Touch. he? He would he, be touched. He would be touched. touched. He, he was... Uh, a gentleman in in all in all ways, really, re- a real loss to to not just broadcasting but but Ireland life because uh, he played an immeasurable part and he'll be uh, I think he'll be fondly remembered by everyone who came into contact with him, whether that be through politics, whether that you say some of the subjects you discussed. He literally, once you met Roger, you didn't forget him. Put it that way. That was Charlie Webster and James Davis there speaking to William King. After the break, we're going to listen back to Roger Watterson's final radio appearance. Faster My, you're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. 
And if you're just joining us, we're dedicating the programme this week to one of the Isle of Man's best known and most respected broadcasters. It was announced on Thursday this week that Roger Watterson had passed away at the age of 77. In this part of the programme, we're going to listen back to his final radio appearance. You may be expecting to hear this. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Roger Watterson and this is Sunday Opinion. As mentioned at the top of the programme, Roger Watterson will be best remembered on air as the voice of Sunday Opinion and the man in line on Manx Radio for 27 years from 1992. However, his final appearance actually came as a guest on a programme called The Power of Radio with Sarah Hendy. Let's listen in. I was fascinated with radio at a very young age during the wartime. Yes, would you believe? <laughs> I was wondering how you first, like, how you were first um, captured by radio. Well, I, I, at the age, at my young age, there wasn't a lot, a lot else other than radio. There's no television. There were, following the wartime, very thin newspapers, which did, didn't really tell you very much. And there were the news in the cinemas, which were short by nature of the, the items that were in them. And radio was a very important factor right throughout the war. And, well, we, I used to, as a wartime babe, I grew up with it. It was part of the household. It was on around the house at certain times of the day. And I became fascinated to be honest, with a, a lot of the things that were on it, because there was only three services. That was the BBC Home Service, and that would, had a regional variations, the light programme, and radio, um, the third programme, not Radio 3. And they all went off at uh, half past ten in the evening because the Rethian um, powers that be said that people shouldn't be, uh, should make ready to go to bed. They shouldn't be out at that time, but they're up to no good. <laughs> There were a lot of comedy shows on the television like Educating Archie or uh, Hancock's Half Hour or Take It From Here, all these programmes which you may not register but somebody of my generation might and um, play on a Saturday night for instance and I, I used to love the plays because even as a young boy it excited my imagination and that's the one thing radio can do. Television can do a lot of other things extremely well, but there is that ability to create in the mind a picture and the imagination that goes with it that I used to love when I used to listen to the plays and the other types of um, similar productions. That used to, what I used to thoroughly enjoy as a young boy was a serial that used to run called Journey Into Space. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. What was what was that program Well, like? it was a, a group of people, David Jacobs, I think, and... Um, Kossoff, I can't remember his other name, and one of the other people who were uh, a team of people going up in a spaceship to the moon. Uh, this, well, th- they were now talking about the 50s. Yeah. And how did they differ, those programmes, those uh, channels that you listened to? Well, Radio 3 was rather remote classical music, or the third programme, as it was called then. Um, radio, the light programme, it had really a lot of light entertainment, comedy shows and music and record request programmes and theatre organ requests and all sorts of things. It was basically just a light, very similar very often to what's done today, except the music's different. Was sitting down and listening to the radio something that you did with your family or was it sort of just part of part of the environment, something well, that was always there? We, the, the whole family was, used to listen to the plays and on a Sunday lunchtime when it, it used to run from family favourites to the Billy Cotton Band show to a comedy programme, we're all, yes, the whole family was there. Uh, not, not all for all of the programmes but quite a great deal of them. For instance, my parents used to get very irritated when I used to go ferreting around the radio to find Radio Luxembourg because the BBC were pretty stodgy in the presentation of the music choice and Luxembourg was breaking new ground. It was the forerunner of the Pirates, but it was a state-run radio station in Luxembourg. And whose voices do you remember hearing on those radio channels when you were young? Well, there was all sorts of voices at the time. I, I don't, as a 
boy, remember all of the people who were on some of them. There were people like Cliff Mitchellmore and, and Gene and who had family favourites on a Sunday. What's the weather like in Cologne, Chris? You know, it, they, but those, that was an amazingly popular programme. And there were all sorts of other voices that you got used to over the time. And I can't remember the names of many of them at, at that time. But, uh, and the news reporters as well, of course, were household names right through the war. Um, so you, you got used to listening to it. It's often said, by the way, that television ruined a very good radio career because when some of these fabulous voices went to television, it didn't do them any good. And you'll know better than most that there is a real difference between um, being a successful television presenter and being a successful radio presenter and really Completely sort of touching different. people's hearts. Um, how, do, how does that work in your mind? Well, it used to be, it's not the same today because technology, like everything else, has moved on. But a film crew that used to go out to record a three-minute piece on cattle somewhere took a six-man crew and it took nearly the best part of a whole day. Um, and there was a lot of other changes like that as well. You used to have to, I did very little television. I did a little, but very little. And one time, one week I did continuity. That's when you saw the announcer. And I had to wear a green suit and a yellow shirt because it was in black and white and that made the colours stand out. When, when did you first get a television set out of interest? Oh, not until I was 14 or 15. The family didn't get one. Uh, and even then I wasn't allowed to watch it in the evening because I had to do my homework. No. And did that, did that change your listening habits? Did, you, did it change your no, relationship with radio? Not a lot because it didn't, a lot of the, the programmes, there was nothing on in the daytime. And we had other things to do. One thing you can do with radio is you can do something else while you're listening to it. Yeah, I've heard it said that radio is company, whereas television is a distraction. It, it, you, you can only do one thing really while you're watching television because it, it requires more than one of That's your right. senses, whereas radio, you can listen and be doing pretty well, much radio could else. do a lot of different jobs. It, 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 it can be musical wallpaper, which is what a lot of them... In fact... Banks Radio at one time used to be described as musical wallpaper, unkindly by the BBC. And there was so many other things to do, but the, the actual sitting and getting used to radio, I come from a generation that radio was a major part in your life. There wasn't anything else other than reading books. And I used to do a lot of reading too as a result. But at 15, while we were at school, we always fancied doing something like this. So a group of us... Um, the school had all sorts of equipment which it used for drama and things like this so we borrowed some of it and we arranged with what was the Nobles Hospital that we would do a Saturday afternoon or evening uh, record request show for the, the patients we did that for 12 months so the, probably that was the first time we actually put a programme together Early days, why do you think you, you as a group felt it was important like this was something that you really wanted to do it must have been quite a cool thing to do I suppose I think we just fancied it <laughs> A little bit later, I, I, I began to realise that there was something about radio that really attracted me. And we had a, uh, I had a shortwave radio that I was given. It was actually an uh, half of an army portable set, a field set. But it was very, very good. It picked up all sorts of things. And I picked up a station, which was, it turns out it was an international station advertising American business. But it was called um, WRUL New York. And uh, there was a fellow called Hilly Dell who did a program called This Wonderful World. So I wrote them and asked them whether they'd like a program recording about the Isle of Man, and they said yes. So that was the first time I actually ever put a program together for anybody else. And I have to say, at that point, I became hooked. Um, and what was the process back then? What did it take to put a programme together, sort of technically, but uh, also as a, as a presenter-producer? Much the same as today, but different equipment. You had to go out with a tape recorder and record what you wanted. You had to write the scripts which you wanted, had to record them, and you had to also then join all the tapes together by cutting them and sticking them together. Gosh. And that's a skill in itself, really, isn't it? Oh, very much so. So that was your first sort of foray into into radio. And, right. um, but when I came older, I realised how powerful, not just from an entertainment point of view, the BBC's ethic was to entertain, to educate and to inform. And I realised that there was a bit more even to it than that. It could be very, very powerful if you look back on the use of propaganda radio stations during the war and if you look at the, 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 all the various other things that it can do. Um, 
And the, the way the news is presented even affects the way the listener receives it and listens to it and thinks about it. Mm-hmm. And I became fascinated with this, not just the technology, but the psychology of radio presentation and what you could do with it. In the wartime, um, it was a dominant and really f- force propaganda stations uh, like um, Tokyo, whatever her name was, or Lord Ho Ho, or, or Voice of America, of course. And the BBC were not backwards in coming forwards on propaganda work in the wartime either. And what did you find in your research? What what did you uncover about those stations and how they affected people? How they affected a society or a country? Well, I don't think people. The, the, if you if you depends which side of the fence you're on. If you're the enemy, as it were, their enemy, or they were the enemy. I don't think people took them all that seriously. Uh, the, people got very uptight about Ho Ho because they didn't always know whether to believe them or not. But it, I don't think they've made a, a fundamental difference. Their idea, of course, was to. Um, damage the morale of the of the other nation and sometimes they produced a, a lot of laughter instead but when i was about 18 i went to work uh, nothing to do with radio uh, in manchester and it was during that period of time i was introduced to two people who were members of an organisation called the Manchester Salford and District Hospital Commentaries Association. Devil of a big title to say. And their function was that they broadcast live every Saturday a football match, usually Manchester City or Manchester United. They had record request shows, they had other types of programmes, and then they used to broadcast Halley concerts live from the Free Trade Hall to an audience which was enormous because there was no competition, there was no commercial radio, there was nothing like that at all. And the territory stretched, if you know, the northwest of England, from Bury in the north to Buxton in the south, and from Oldham in the east to Warrington in the west. And every hospital and nursing home in that was on it, wired on it. It was a big audience. And it was interesting enough that it was, I mean, you needed a few people to do this, and people who were on air were very often people who did other jobs. And the people who were helping out actually worked for the BBC or ITV. And uh, they swapped jobs, as it were. And it worked extremely well. And it was through that avenue that I was introduced to various people, and particularly the North Regional Controller at the BBC, and I went on to the next step. Mm-hmm. And, and what was the next step? Well, the next step was, <laughs> uh, first of all, to be told that actually I was by no means ready to broadcast on the BBC and would need some uh, some training for a while if I was prepared to undergo it, bearing in mind I wasn't getting paid for it um, at that time, and uh, which I was happy to do because their training in those days was very good. Um, even how to read the news, pace yourself reading the news, and the way they did that was make you read each word to the click of a metronome. Really? As you're practicing, yes, things like this. So extremely good. And I thoroughly enjoyed that period of time. And uh, what I learned then is still with me today. What other things did you learn during that period of time where you were sort of preparing to become a radio presenter for the BBC? Everything from uh, people can tell whether you're smiling in your voice, which is quite a common one, uh, to um, remember you're a guest in their house, act like it, you know. The, the, the way you behave, the things that you say, things you wouldn't do if you were, if you were visiting somebody. And uh, one of the, probably the most lasting advice that I ever had was that I, while I was in the place one day, the producer I was with said that there's a man in our canteen today, I don't know what he was doing there, but there's a man in our canteen who was a legend in broadcasting, and I'm going to introduce you to him. And the fellow was called Edward R. Murrow, who was the voice of Britain to the Americans during the war. He covered the whole Blitz during the wartime. He also did a lot of other things. He went, flew out with Lancaster bombers reporting bombing raids, which is a risky business, and a lot of other things like that. And he, was, he always had a fag in his mouth. And he was in the canteen doing something, and I was introduced to him, and he smiled, and he said, and uh, the producer, a fellow called Randall Hurley, said to me, Rogers of... Uh, you in this business and you're near retiring age, what advice would you give him? And he looked at me for a good few seconds and then he said, with taking his fag out of his mouth, he said, well, um, <coughs> nobody wants to know what a smart ass you are. I thought, hang on a minute. But what, and he was right. What he meant was, he went on to explain it, if you're regular on a station, 
they, they get you every day, they get you every week, they get you. A, they don't really want to know all about you all the time. It's not your ego trip. And he went on to explain how the people want to know about the person you're talking to, how it's your job to get it out of them. How it's your, all this sort of business was extremely good advice, um, including, which I've always remembered, the easiest question to ask and the most difficult to answer is why? <laughs> but Ed Mora did something else on that trip in the, he sort of has been a, a mentor of mine in that sense for, for all this time. The trip he went to the Lancaster bomber, which, as I say, was a very risky business because on that it was a raid to Berlin, and on that raid five journalists went out and only two came back. And he 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 did another thing. He said to me, "When you are going out to report, it's not your job just to give the facts, but you need to paint the picture. You need to create images in the person's mind so they can see what you're seeing." And uh, if, you, if you, anybody ever gets timed, the, the, all, a lot of his stuff is on YouTube. And that one is on YouTube. And it's, it's still an amazing piece of broadcasting. Buzz, the bomb aimer, crackled through on the intercom. There's a battle going on on the starboard beam. We couldn't see the aircraft, but we could see the jets of red Kaiser being exchanged. Suddenly there was a burst of yellow flame and Jock remarked, that's a fighter going down. Note the position. The whole thing was interesting, but remote. Dave, the navigator, who was sitting back with his maps, charts, and compasses, said, the attack ought to begin in exactly two minutes. We were still over the clouds. But suddenly, those dirty gray clouds turned white. We were over the outer searchlight defenses. The clouds below us were white, and we were black. D-Dog seemed like a black bug on a white sheet. The flak began coming up but none of it close. We were still a long way from Berlin. I didn't realize just how far. Jock observed, there's a kite on fire dead ahead. It was a great golden, slow-moving meteor slanting towards the earth. By this time, we were about 30 miles from our target area in Berlin. That 30 miles was the longest flight I have ever made. Dead on time, Buzz, the bomb aimer, reported, Target indicators going down. The same moment the sky ahead was lit up by bright yellow flares. Off to starboard, another kite went down in flames. The flares were sprouting all over the sky, reds and greens and yellows, and we were flying straight for the center of the fireworks. D-Dog seemed to be standing still, the four propellers thrashing the air. But we didn't seem to be closing in. The cloud had cleared. And off to the starboard, a lank was caught by at least 14 searchlight beams. We could see him twist and turn and finally break out. But still, the whole thing had a quality of unreality about it. No one seemed to be shooting at us, but it was getting lighter all the time. Suddenly, a tremendous big blob of yellow light appeared dead ahead, another to the right and another to the left. We were flying straight for them. How do you think things changed for radio um, from from that time where it was it was without other uh, interference or worry or competition? In many ways, it's improved because the Reithian BBC was very stuffy and didn't put things out, didn't ban records for the reasons today we'd find silly. And uh, it really was the pirate radios, of which one was parked off Ramsey for uh, quite a while, that actually rattled the BBC in the end. And although there was a big political row with the Isle of Man about it, and there was a, a, a row with all sorts of these things, and in the end they, they, they passed legislation which effectively uh, stopped them. But what the BBC realised they had to do the, they'd become so popular and they were the public broadcaster that they couldn't ignore it. And that's how Radio 1 started. Mm. And um, the chap who set up Radio 1 and was actually the controller of Radio 2 as well, when he retired, became controller of Max Radio. The man, Mark White, 
he retired to the Isle of Man and then didn't take long before he got fed up of inactivity and he was asked to do a, a, a survey on Manx Radio and from then onwards he became deeply involved in the station and he was here for many, many years. He put a stamp on it in a way that Manx Radio almost became a, a Manx version of Radio 2. He had wonderful phrases. He had a, he had a RF mustachios and he had wonderful types that you wonderful phrases and he'd say things to you like, well, Roger, if you were to ask me about your programme, well, you weren't going to ask him, but he was going to tell you. <laughs> you know? Speaking of how people came to be involved with Manx Radio, how was it that you came to came to be here? I was loosely involved with Manx Radio in its very, very early days, almost when it was in a caravan, partly because I stuck my nose in the door and introduced myself. Um, and then it moved out of the caravan down onto uh, the promenade there, into what is now Tower House, but uh, into the basement there. And I recorded some pro- programmes for it, Christmas programmes, uh, f- for Manx people in Manchester who wanted to send messages home. And we recorded those over there. and just generally kept in contact with the station over, over all the years until... I be, now, this is an interesting mixture. I became a member of the House of Keys. And on that time, I was appointed as um, a member of the Isle of Man Broadcasting Commission, which was the regulator. But because of a whole series of circumstances, the government ended up by owning the station. So I ended up by being on the management committee of the station. Now, that's an interesting contradiction. I'm the regulator, and I was partly responsible for running the place. I've been involved in it ever since. And one of your other guests on this program, Charlie Webster, who was the engineer, it was at that time that he, he approached us and said, look, I would like to be a producer. I think I've got some good ideas. This sta-. And he did have, and uh, this station needs it. And one of the first programs he put together was Sunday Opinion um, with a fellow called John Klukas. And it was many years later that he came into my office one day. John had died, and we had a temporary team in. And he said to me, will you do a programme for me? I said, well, I'm a bit rusty, Charlie. What have you got in mind? He said, well, I'd like you to do a few just to Christmas till I find somebody to do it permanently. That was 25 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And what what purpose do you think Sunday Opinion served the um, other programmes on the station at the time that didn't? What gap did it fill? Well, the station didn't have the range of even news and current affairs that it's even got today. Neither did it have the range of programmes that it's got today. Uh, it was really doing a lot, not a lot more than playing music and uh, news. And uh, Charles realised the newspapers were, well, they were being very careful about what they said about Tidwell because they didn't want to damage their advertising revenue. So Charles realised, I think, that there was a place for a programme that took, brought in individuals, probably with very different points of view together, and left them debate it in public. And it it not been done before, and that's what he did, and very successfully did it. And it began the programme, it had a huge impact, and actually has had to retain quite an impact over the years. How have you seen it change? Because we live in a world now where people are consuming radio differently, people are expressing their opinions differently, and something like Sunday Opinion, which um, still serves this very critical purpose, um, it must have evolved quite dramatically since you started it. One of the programmes was Man in Line, which is what it explains. It was a, t- a programme where people phoned in. And there were times, not every programme, but there were times when you couldn't get them all in. Or there were times when you used to get two people who were really disagreeing with the other completely, and you put them both on the air together and let them fight it out. But nowadays, we get hardly any calls. And most of the people hide behind texts or emails and they don't want to be challenged I think some of them they find it an easier way to do it and you get one or two old faithfuls I'm afraid that that's sad because man in line in his heyday was a ding dong it was it was wonderful yeah. what do you think that says about us as a people not not wanting to be sort of held accountable for our comments Oh, I think people are all very well to grumble and grouse, but they won't stand up and justify it. This happens everywhere, except the people you see who go to public meetings, and then when you go to them yourself, we used to cover a lot of public meetings at one time. They're the same people at every meeting. A lot of the people who should be there aren't. What I think is a pity today is that I can remember having to go 
um, and stand the corner fighting for Manx Radio's medium wave frequency just to make sure that the signal reaches Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Now, today, uh, probably we wouldn't even bother because there's so many other means of getting access to the programme and listening to the programme that listening figures are actually almost meaningless today because people listen on podcasts or they listen when they go home on their phone or they listen to the various things. And you don't even know on that method whether they're listening to all the programme. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a fundamental change in what we do. But the one thing that Manx Radio, particularly Manx Radio, it was unique in broadcasting when it set up. It was opposed by the BBC. They did everything possible to stop it. They didn't succeed, but they tried, um, th- even to the point of trying to restrict its access to sporting events and things of this nature. But it succeeded in getting at the time, because there was none of this competition in iPods and commercial stations all over the place, one has to be fair and say, it reached an audience reach of 75 to 80 percent. Now, it was, it was unique in radio stations anywhere. That meant that the larger proportion of the Manx population tuned into Manx radio sometime in the daytime. It was their source, coming back to where we come in, of entertainment and information. Do you have faith in radio's enduring appeal? I think radio still has a great part to play. Come back to where we came in. The, the imagination, the presentation, the styles. Forgive me, but... Um, squeaky-voiced presenters who don't really speak particularly good English or have limited vocabularies, whilst people may not actually identify it, as I've just said, it gives over a subliminal message. The radio will do, and this station in particular, will do extremely well if it focuses on quality. That was the late Roger Watterson with his final appearance on the airwaves. He was speaking to Sarah Hendy on Manx Radio's The Power of Radio programme earlier this year. Roger passed away on Thursday, the 7th of November, at Nobles Hospital. Husband of Gwen, father of Lee and Ewan, a service to celebrate Roger's life will take place at 12.45pm on Thursday the 14th of November at St Ninian's Church in Douglas, followed by private cremation. He will be sorely missed. Thanks for listening.